The Lever. Subscriber-supported journalism that holds power accountable. As a Lever Premium subscriber, you'll get to hear exclusive bonus content from this episode and others in your feed. To become a subscriber, go to levernews.com. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Lever Time, the flagship podcast from The Lever, an independent investigative news outlet. I am your host, David Sirota. On today's show, some continuing coverage of the bank panic of 2023. We have a terrific guest, a really important guest, Sally Amarova. She's the Cornell Law School professor whose name may sound familiar to you. She was nominated to be one of the federal government's top bank regulators, but her nomination was blocked by Senate Republicans and corporate Democrats. I talked to her about what regulators could have done to halt this current bank crisis and what can be done to prevent future crises. This week, our paid subscribers will also get a bonus segment. The Levers Julia Rock and I go over one very big question. Should Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell be fired? And how could a president fire a Federal Reserve Chairman? That's coming up on our bonus segment for our paying subscribers. If you want access to Lever Time Premium to get those bonus segments, you can head over to levernews.com to become a supporting paying subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content, and you're directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. Speaking of which, if you're looking for other ways to support our work, share our reporting with your friends and family. Leave this podcast a rating and review on your podcast player. The only way that independent media grows is by word of mouth, so we need all the help we can get to combat the inane bullshit that is corporate media. I'm here today with Lever Times producer, producer Jared. Hey, producer Jared, how you doing? Hey, David. So I uh, got some uh, interesting news for you with some analytics I was looking at uh, the other day dealing with Lever Time and its audience growth. And some interesting things that I noticed is, you know, Lever Time, the number of listeners across all the different platforms, it's, you know, been growing steadily over the last couple years, you know, adding subscribers and new listens every single month. But then in February, something crazy happened where it just shot up 30% and we just got a bulk of new listeners out there in podcast land that have found their way to lever time and new subscribers. And uh, I think it really has to come back to uh, all the breaking news reporting that has been done on Norfolk Southern and the banks. I mean, we've had we've been on really a, a, a kind of an incredible streak. I mean, it's actually started before that. We broke that big story about uh, Pete Buttigieg and Southwest Airlines, the attorneys general pushing him uh, to crack down on the airlines, pushing a, a, a push that he basically ignored. Then we did the uh, East Palestine reporting. Then we did the Silicon Valley Bank reporting. It has been an incredible run, and you love to see it uh, in terms of the podcast subscriber growth. That is great. So everybody who's listening, who's spread the word about Lever Time, thank you. Thank you so much. It's, it's, it's obviously helping. It's obviously working. And I should mention, it's influencing the policy debate. I mean, there's bipartisan rail safety legislation in the Senate now uh, that, that is in part a result of the reporting that we're doing and the reach uh, that, our, that our work is, is having. Yeah. And speaking of the word getting out, there was a uh, 
really interesting David Sirota profile <laughs> in the in the web on the website uh, Airmail, uh, and uh, I'll go ahead and read the the title here. We'll we'll drop a link in the uh, in the episode description because everyone should check this out if you're a Sirota fan. It's called Politics by Other Means. Is David Sirota, whose two year old news site The Lever has been ahead of the media pack on several recent stories, a journalist or an activist? The answer is yes. And David, the thing that surprised me the most was the byline on this article, uh, Brian Stelter. Right. If people hear that name, it sounds familiar. That's the uh, former CNN host uh, of, of uh, Reliable Sources. Uh, the He was a New York Times writer. Listen, listen, when Brian called me up and said he wanted to do this profile, I was a little bit circumspect. I was like, oh, no, it's going to be like making fun of us or or sort of criticizing us. I, I was actually really pleased with this profile. And I, I had a couple of people say, wow, you're, you're like a real fancy person now because you're in airmail. Uh, for folks who don't know, airmail is the publication, the new publication by um, the former longtime Vanity Fair editor, Graydon Carter. Uh, so uh, a couple of my friends were joking like, wow, you're such a, you're such a fancy person. Now you're Among in the, the media elite there. Yeah, David. And it, it's I also know. like, I, I, what I loved about it was like, you know, uh, Stelter quoted some other people referencing you as quote, pugilistic, intense, <laughs> and even obsessive, but you know, you're also funny and humorous. So he, he got both ends of the, of the Sirota, uh, personality there. You can only survive reporting, uh, what we report with having a, a good a good sense of humor that that's for sure. So I, I try to keep a sense of humor, even though sometimes it can be a dark sense of humor. I, I hope people will go read the article uh, again. It's in the episode description. Uh, take a look at it because it does take take seriously the work that we do here at the Lever, and it talks a lot about our growth uh, and what we're trying to accomplish. So take a look at it if you can. Yeah, and the uh, other people reading the Lever religiously were uh, Representative Roe. Kahana on a uh, live call-in show that we had on Friday about the SVP banking crisis. He also uh, name-checked the Lever's reporting, calling it a must-read. Thank you. Thank you to, to you and Lever for the reporting. It's been one story after the other. Now you're a must-read. Yeah, and I and I appreciate that. I mean, listen, Rokana uh, on that Colin. I mean, what I what I appreciate about Rokana is I don't agree with him on everything, but he always makes himself available to be on independent media. And I think when he said that about our work, I think he was reflecting. Listen, he's reflecting something that I've always believed in, which is that if you break big stories on and and you surface uh, important information, it will ultimately, it can ultimately travel around, but it is, it is a lot of work. Uh, It has been a lot of, uh, it's been a big slog to get our work out there. And uh, Rokahana was an interesting person to talk to in the wake of the banking crisis here, because while at once he's both a progressive lawmaker, he also represents Silicon Valley there and, uh, you know, is very familiar with the same types of VCs and um, other financiers that got in so much trouble with their deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. So it, it was interesting hearing how, you know, the questions you asked him and also, you know, in the chat, some of the uh, ways that people were perceiving Kahana in the in the scheme of this moment. Yeah. I mean, he's in a position where his, the bank is in his district, literally the bank that collapses in his district. Um, 
a lot of businesses in his district uh, do rely on financial services at that bank. Uh, but he also voted against deregulating that bank. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, universal deposit insurance. Uh, we also uh, talked about whether uh, Jay Powell, the Federal Reserve chairman, should be fired. He took the position that it might destabilize the markets. I, I, I take the position that it's kind of ridiculous to to argue that we can't fire the Fed chairman who destabilized the markets because it might destabilize the markets. That's kind of a a tautology that I don't I don't subscribe to. Like the guy Jay Powell, more and more seems like a chaos agent in the entire financial system and the economy. But we talk more about that uh, in our bonus segment with Julia Rock, whether Jay Powell should be fired. Uh, for those who who are interested in that topic, go to the website firepowell.com and you will see our open letter to Joe Biden about the question of whether Jay Powell uh, should be fired. Okay, let's stop there uh, because I want to get to our big topic uh, of the day. Uh, what regulations could be put in place to prevent the kind of bank crises uh, that we uh, have seen over and over again over the last many years. We're going to talk to the person who was the nominee to be a top federal bank regulator, whose nomination was blocked because she was pushing for regulations that Republicans and corporate Democrats thought would be too tough on the banks. Up next, our interview with Sally Amarova and Matt Stoller. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our big story today, Last week, as news spread about the ongoing crisis in the banking system, we reached out to two people who know what's really going on and what can be done to prevent these kinds of emergencies from happening in the first place. Cornell University Law School professor Saleh Amarova and Matt Stoller, an analyst and researcher who writes frequently about financial regulations at the American Economic Liberties Project. If Omarova's name sounds a bit familiar, that's because she was nominated by President Biden to be one of the federal government's top bank regulators. But her nomination was blocked in the U.S. Senate by Republicans and a group of corporate Democrats. They opposed her because she was promising much tougher bank regulations, which might have helped prevent the current bank crisis. In this discussion, I talked to Omarova and Stoller about the bank industry's lobbying and deregulation that led to this crisis, and we discussed what can be done to move us away from never-ending financial panics. The first uh, guest that we have uh, is uh, Saleh Omarova, who was a Biden nominee uh, to be one of the top financial regulators in the country, uh, but whose nomination for the office of the uh, Comptroller of the Currency, whose nomination was blocked by a coalition of Republicans and corporate-aligned Democrats. We also uh, have Matt Stoller of the American Economic Liberties Project, who writes extensively uh, on all of this stuff at his terrific newsletter called Big. Uh, so both uh, really terrific experts are pleased to have them here. Uh, I think, uh, Julia, you have uh, the first question for uh, Professor Omarova. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this call. I'm really excited to have you. So your your nomination to the Senate uh, was blocked sort of in, in part because uh, banks did not like the way you were talking about, you know, systemic risks in, in the financial system and, and some of the sort of bigger picture problems in the financial system that, that were creating different types of risks. Um, 
I'm wondering if sort of any any of the topics that came up uh, in your confirmation hearing or that that banks were concerned uh, that, you know, you were going to take action on as a regulator had any bearing on what just happened with um, Silicon Valley Bank. And, and if there were things that in just the past, I guess, year and a half or so uh, since the nation was blocked that you think regulators should have been doing differently. Well, uh, thank you so much, David and Julia, for having me on this wonderful show. And uh, Julie, of course, you're asking the question that's not at all complicated, right? <laughs> yeah, it's an easy one. So, um, that's right. During my nomination, as you already said, um, I was basically portrayed as some kind of bank-hating person um, for proposing various um, ways to kind of minimize the risk of bailouts. And what was thrown into my face repeatedly was that, you know, we don't need this radical reforms, we, we don't need these crazy ideas because everything is going just fine. And of course, now we see that nothing is really going just fine. And in particular, this um, deregulatory bill during the Trump era that was passed by Congress in 2018, that sadly and sort of unexpectedly at the time for me, became the, the sort of lightning rod of all these attacks on my um not just integrity, but mostly even on my competence, which was kind of ridiculous. So uh, I did testify back in 2017 in the Senate hearing, uh, specifically against this um, idea of deregulating large and so-called mid-sized banks. And one of the uh, basic comments I made was, look, you know, $50 billion, not chump change, and uh, certainly $250 billion is a lot of money. And also that we should never really, um, you know, listen to, just the regulated industry telling us that um, regulation is too expensive, that they actually have everything under control, and that their private profit-making interests are somehow naturally and constantly aligned with our interest in, in financial stability. And of course, nobody listened to me then, and um, then when uh, I was going through my nomination, that was brought up as some kind of a, an instance of my um, incompetence. So what if this uh, 2018 law was not passed, right? And we still had those original Dodd-Frank Act uh, regulatory and, and supervisory constraints on banks like SVP or Signature. Well, first of all, maybe they wouldn't have grown quite so fast, quite so big, because uh, once Congress uh, basically lifts the threshold uh, above which you as a bank are considered systemically important, then there is a lot of room to play Right, so quickly within a few years, uh, Silicon Valley Bank grew from $50 billion all the way to $200 billion. Um, market rationality tells us that this is probably a very risky enterprise. You cannot grow so fast without incurring certain risks. But at the same time, conveniently, the same uh, regulatory, the same legislation enabled the regulators, including the Federal Reserve, to roll back a lot of the regulatory uh, constraints on what banks could do. Uh, for example, like you said, David, the liquidity ratios and various other stress test uh, requirements and all of that stuff was either lifted or significantly weakened for uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and similar banks. So now, of course, uh, the question of what to do, the first and the easiest answer is, well, first of all, let's just go back to where we were back in 2018. Uh, it wasn't perfect by any means. It was not perfect, but let's at least restore uh, certain prudential supervisory and regulatory requirements that could tighten um, some of these 
some of these prospects, business prospects for uh, some of these banks. And I agree with that. But I also think um, there, there are bigger questions to be asked. And uh, you've, uh, you've been asking um, uh, Rohana about his views on this uh, universal deposit insurance proposal, for example. And whatever one might think of it, um, it, it is an example of how at least the rhetoric of the political debate is shifting today as compared to where it was several years ago and even in 2008. And it's kind of interesting because, you know, if you think about it, this particular crisis was not, and so far, thank goodness, it's not yet quite as systemic and quite as devastating as the crisis in 2000 was. And yet we are prepared to push a little bit further in our conversation about what is possible, what is feasible as a response. And I think it has a lot to do with the optics, which are super important, of course, but also with our learning curve, right? One time after another, yet another time in the last 15 years, how many times have we experienced this kind of a situation where some structural problem surfaces and somehow those with the loudest voices and deepest pockets get away with uh, a lot more than what regular folks can get away with. And I think this is where we should cherish this moment to the extent that there is anything positive to be taken out of it as an opportunity to push further. And I'm happy to talk about what you think or what I think uh, that might look like. Before we get to that, I want to bring Matt Stoller into this conversation. Matt Stoller, the American Economic Liberties Project. Uh, you have written critically about the entire uh, role of the Fed, uh, where the Fed uh, exists in our politics. I think it's not all that widely well understood. But to, to put a, a fine point on, on the question about, for instance, the Fed, this question about whether it's the regulations or the regulators. You know, I, I tweeted out today the old picture of the two Spider-Men pointing at each other, right? And it's one, the politicians, uh, you know, saying it was the regulated, the politicians who deregulated, uh, these banks pointing at the regulators saying the regulators weren't doing their job. They had power to do their job. Then you've got the regulators pointing at the politicians saying, no, it's the politicians who uh, deregulated these banks. So I guess my question through the prism of, for instance, the Fed, the top bank regulator is, is it the deregulation or is it the regulators? I'm guessing you're going to say both. But but where do you come down on that 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 discourse? Well, the Fed wrote the 2018 law, right? The Fed always hated uh, Dodd-Frank. They never thought that the banks were the the big banks were the cause of the financial crisis in 2008. And so they always wanted to roll back these rules because they think that the um, large powerful banking institutions rep represent the strength of America and they want to do everything they can to help them. And they think it's unfair that they're placing constraints on them. The way I think about the Fed, well, I mean, I have many ways of thinking about the Fed, but the best analogy was from a, someone who's in the regulatory agencies who said, who he was, he said that um, the Fed is kind of like the parents of Veruca Salt in uh, the, the dad of Veruca Salt in Willy Wonka. <laughs> right. Who just like constantly indulges his incredibly spoiled child. Um, that I think that's kind of the best analogy. But just institutionally, the Fed, I was pretty angry about this bailout. But one of the things that's been really nice to see, and I think it's I'm pretty optimistic about it, is just how much uh, anger there is at the Fed, how obvious it is that the Fed is a disaster 
And a lot of people that are pretty cautious are starting to say, we need to take authority away from the Fed. Because if, if you think about what, what happened in 2008 and you think about the last 10 years of economic policymaking, and you think about policymaking in general in our democratic society, it's really the province of central bankers and judges. And that is a whole, that is a pretty dangerous way to run a culture. And so having people notice that the small group of technocrats at the Fed are institutionally conflicted, and I can go into that if you want, um, but they don't, basically they can make a mess and don't have to clean it up. The FDIC has to clean it up. Um, they are highly deferential to people with capital, and they effectively like the fact that four government agencies called J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup that we can ask to do things for them. Um, they, that, that, that is who they are. That is how they've structured our society, and there is now criticism of that. So I'm very happy about it, uh, but we have to recognize that we have this rogue institution that has bankers on the board. I mean, the, the, the head of the Silicon Valley Bank, the CEO, was on the board of the San Francisco Fed that regulated him, which is, which is totally crazy. Um, and they call themselves independent of political control, which is also crazy because this is, this is who sets monetary policy and employment policy and Bank supervised has bank supervisory authority over the largest and most powerful institutions in our culture. And somehow we have this kind of they have so much such mystique that that we all say, oh, they should be allowed to make decisions over our lives without our ability to influence them through elections, which is also crazy. And so I'm glad that now that there's all of this exposure about just how bad they are at their jobs on, a, on essentially a competence level. Uh, that that they're getting exposed and we can maybe start to have the deeper conversation that we started to have during the 2008 crisis but never finished. So uh, pivoting a little bit from that, Professor Omarova, I wanted to ask you about something sort of made my jaw drop that I saw uh, you tweeting about, which is that in, in the wake of the FDIC's takeover of Silicon Valley Bank, the, the sort of uh, new bank that's in existence bragged, this action by FDIC effectively means that deposits held with Silicon Valley Bank are among the safest of any bank or institution in the country. We are actively opening new accounts of all sizes and making new loans. The bank is now marketing itself as the safest, safest place for transfer your deposits, fully insured with no limits or caps. What do you make of this? What does it say about uh, proposals like universal uh, deposit insurance, sort of how did we end up in this situation? So I, the reason I tweeted out this or retweeted that, uh, that piece of information was that I just thought that it was, uh, uh, just so indicative, right? Like getting to the very core of the problem here. Uh, look, the reason why it's possible to turn a dying bank suddenly into the safest bank on the planet is because there is this explicit putting forward of, of our power, public power, to back up uh, private institutions' liabilities, explicitly put behind this particular bank, right? And this is, uh, this is where uh, a lot of these proposals that currently are circulating about universal deposit insurance, basically, they're playing up on that, on that notion, look, we do it anyway. 
when a particular bank is about to fail and deemed systemically risky, we just go ahead and basically show the world that what we pretend to be a private bank-created deposit money, in fact, really is sovereign money, the money of the public. And so it becomes that way when there is a difficulty, right? So removing that fiction, uh, on the one hand, I'm sympathetic to that idea to the extent that it would actually just allow us call things uh, as they are, rather than pretending that there is some kind of, a, a, you know, market discipline or whatever. But I worry about that precisely because of what happened with the SVB and its claim immediately turning around and trying to turn this public backup, explicit backup to its own uh, benefit somehow. And the the reason I'm worried about this is that there are risks. There are risks to removing that ambiguity. Even if it's fiction, even if we all know that ultimately uh, the, the FDIC and the Fed and the Treasury will come in and bail out uh, banks, there is still um, there is still some notion that, you know, look, once we admit to it, then we really need to figure out a way of really regulating these banking institutions, not as some kind of private companies that are, uh, you know, living according to market discipline, but as really purveyors of a fundamental public good, a form of public utility. And we've stopped looking at banks this way a long time ago, certainly in the last 25, 30 years. And so if we extend deposit insurance to all deposits, no matter what, all banks, no matter what, then we have to really think about what kind of activity limitations we will impose on those banks, how we're going to really keep them, uh, you know, basically tethered to that kind of public utility role and not allow them to incur or create risks out there because there is a risk of uh, new forms of regulatory arbitrage. I don't know if uh, we can anticipate all those shifts in the incentives that will happen once we declare all deposits out there uh, fully and explicitly protected by the public. Will that necessarily kill too big to fail like JP Morgan? Or will it actually allow JP Morgan to start using that explicit guarantee to create yet more riskier financial products and offer those products to a variety of its potential clients and say, look, you know, uh, it's expensive now to have this fully protected, explicitly protected deposits because FDIC is charging us more. So instead of keeping your money in those expensive deposits, how about you do X, Y, Z? So this is the concern that I have, and I'm not sure that uh, it's really the only solution that we should pursue. But having said that, I think what we really need to think about is public option for uh, deposit money. And that is where uh, I think we need to kind of look at technology and look at how we can recreate, be it a postal banking, be it some kind of a CBDC kind of a thing, or whatever it is. But we need to start thinking seriously about public option for the safe, liquid transactional deposits. Let me turn back to Matt Stoller. I'll just piggyback off that. Th this question of universal deposit insurance and the potential downsides of it. Just tell us your thoughts on that. Yeah, so I, um, in many ways, I agree with, uh, with Solly on that. I, I am, I would be very nervous about it because um, banks, you know, what we call banks are not banks. They are, uh, they, there's like a core of banking service, which is managing and facilitating payments, a place for self-keeping, some, some basic lending. Um, and then there's, they've built on that core a huge amount of other stuff, 
which is essentially forms of risk taking and gambling. And if you just have the business of banking, you had a bunch of um, very simple banks, which is kind of what we had in the middle of the 20th century. You can only do, if you're a commercial bank, you can only do certain things. If you're a thrift, you can only do certain things. You can't take demand deposits. You know, they're, they're, if you have very prescriptive rules that say in your charter, you are only allowed to do X and not outside of that, then I think you can do universal deposits without too much risk. But but you can't regulate what we have. These are these giant monstrosities that are just far too complex for even the people running them to know what's going on. So like Silicon Valley Bank was a hedge fund attached to a government guarantee, right? And that's like, that's not what a bank should be. A bank should be a place for safekeeping. It should be a place that if you have a business, you need like a payroll account or you need a transaction account, you can just use that, like you get service and you can just, it's a place for transactions. What I would think, you know, if you if you do universal um, deposit insurance, then what will happen is a bunch of deposits will flood into the system from the shadow banking system. And then bankers will have to put those deposits to work and they will put that in in riskier assets. They'll they'll bet on commercial loans or whatever it is that they bet on. And our regulators, I don't know if anybody's noticed, they're not up to snuff on this. And I don't even know if you could regulate this system, even if you had aggressive regulators, but that, that would be my worry. I think there are a couple of options that we could go, we could go with, which is one is to try to kind of take out the only insure the kind of public utility aspects of the banks. So you mm-hmm. would just put the FDIC had this program from 2008 to 2010 where they, they were like, okay, if you have a business account and you're not getting interest on it, so you're not looking for a return but it's used for payroll or it's used for escrow or it's used for lots of transactions. We'll back that, you know, that's, that's backstopped, right? So a bank, a bankruptcy for like, for Silicon Valley bank wouldn't transmit to the larger economy because those bank accounts where there's payroll or transactions would be backstopped, but everything else, if you're just a rich guy and you want to put a bunch of money into the regulated banking system and get a return, that's not backstopped. So that's one, I think one thing that I, I would be, I think might, might make sense. I think another thing that might make sense just because we have these, um, you know, we fundamentally Dodd-Frank was a failure. We have too big to fail banks. We have government agencies called JP Morgan and Bank of America and so on and so forth. And we have to take those apart. But until we do, you're going to see depositors just run away from smaller banks, not even the regionals now, the ones that a hundred billion dollars and up everyone, like people kind of implicitly understand that those deposits are backed. But if you're a community bank, there are 4,000 community banks in this country or three, 3,500, something like that. You, you know, yeah, you'll, you'll get wiped. I mean, they don't, Jenny Ellen, um, the regulators, they have no problem, you know, wiping you out and hurting your uninsured deposits. So I would, might be in favor of uninsured deposits for banks that have less than five billion or $10 billion of assets. I wouldn't love it. I don't think it's the ideal solution. I think the ideal solution is to get rid of the too big to fail problem, simplify the banking system radically, have, much more aggressive uh, asset side regulation. And then you can, you can deal with some, you can essentially give the full faith and credit of the United States to a bunch of bankers, but that's the, uh, so that's how I would think about the problem. But I agree with, with um, most pretty much everything that, um, that, uh, that Sally said. Uh, Professor Omar, well, let me, let me uh, follow on that and, and ask you a question about the, this idea of like moving forward. So, if you were, let's say you were in 
the job that you were nominated for and Republicans and corporate aligned Democrats had not blocked your nomination, what would you be doing right now? Now, granted, you'd be in a regulatory position, not a legislative position, but even in a regulatory position, what would you be doing regulatorily? What would you be telling Congress to right now, whether it's on deposit insurance or anything else? Wow, that is a very difficult question to answer, David, because it's a counterfactual. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. I usually try to shy away from, you know, making these big promises. Oh, if I were there, none of this would have happened. You know? Well, you were going to be you were going to be there until the, you know, the corruption <laughs> caucus blocked your blocked your nomination. So I, I, I want to live in the counterfactual world where you I'll, are one I'll of the say it, If Solly were there, none of this would have happened. <laughs> oh, thank you, Matt. I thank mean, you, you so know much. that. Well, like, you would have stopped it. <laughs> but you don't well, have to... I, don't, I don't know. My, Of course, uh, the OCC was not in charge of SVB uh, or, uh, you know, Silvergate Bank or whatnot. But if I were uh, the controller, then my first uh, set of actions would have been really to focus on the supervisory core at the OCC and to really try to kind of strengthen the supervision process and make sure that our supervisors are watching out for various uh, risks and uh, that they're not afraid to ask tough questions, both of the bank's management uh, managers, but also of their own superiors up the chain, including me. Because uh, I think what is missing often from the policymakers, um, I guess, discussions and again, this is just I'm an outsider to, uh, to all of that. But when the regulators and legislators get together, I worry that there is too much of that groupthink of some sort or at least shared assumptions and at least this sort of reluctance to really be a difficult person in the room and keep pressing, asking difficult questions. Why not? Why not this? Why don't we have um, a different way of approaching the issue or whatnot? And that's what I would have brought to the table. How it would have played out in the particular situation would, it, would depend, of course, on, on the circumstances. But one thing I could have, I could have promised the people uh, was that, um, you know, I'd be the one fighting. Julia, you have a question. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to, to throw a question at you, uh, Matt, because it's it's been uh, really eye-opening for me, you know, reading about the Fed this week. Obviously, Jerome Powell has been a huge story of the Biden administration because, as listeners probably remember, he's initially a Trump appointee. He's a private equity multimillionaire. Uh, he's been on one of the most or the most aggressive rate hiking cycles in American history. And you've been writing, uh, Matt, very critically about the Fed, uh, its role as well as sort of lack of a role in some cases in Silicon Valley banks collapse. I'm wondering what what exactly um, sort of a realistic way of moving forward is in terms of, you know, what what Congress should do to change the Fed, uh, what how Biden's relationship to the Fed had changed, should change, should Powell lose his job? Uh, what what should happen with the Fed? Well, the one thing the Fed cares about is their independence, right? So they, the Fed does historically, so I, I wrote a book in uh, about a guy, a congressman named Wright Patman, who spent, uh, he was in Congress for 46 years from uh, 1929 all the way to 1976. And for many of them, he spent his time torturing the Fed as the chair of the banking committee. Um, and what the Fed cares about is um, is their ability to have discretion to make decisions, which they call 
independence. So if you want to get the Fed to do things, you have to threaten to take that. You have to tell them to do something, and then you have to threaten to take that away. And uh, and what? So you can do that in many ways. You can say we're going to have more transparency at the Fed, an audit. We're going to like, you know, we're going to put you on congressional appropriations. We're going to. Um, you know, we're good because they print their own budget. It's a, kind of amazing. Um, there's, there's, there's so many dirty things about the Fed. It's hilarious. Um, but there are lots of ways that you can um, you can get the Fed to behave. But I think, you know, what Congress should really start doing is um, and members of Congress should just explicitly start talking about how the Fed is not independent and needs needs to be. Uh, needs to be subject to more strict guidance from Congress and the executive branch. And I think if I were the Biden administration, you know, whenever I watch CNBC every morning um, and, you know, whenever the Biden administration spokespeople come on and talk, they get asked about what the Fed is doing. And they say, well, of course, I wouldn't comment on interest rate levels or monetary policy or what the Fed is doing because, you know, we think the Fed is independent. But blah, blah, blah. And then they say whatever they're going to say. But I think they should just drop that charade and they think they should just like Trump had the right idea when he was he was publicly complaining about Jay Powell and interest rates. The president should really be running our, our monetary policy or Congress should someone who's in elected office. So I think that it's important to just drop the charade about the Fed being independent and just start saying the Fed is not independent um, and we need to figure out how to how to structure our monetary policy and our supervisory policy so that. Uh, they do what Congress wants, um, and not and not what um, and not what they feel like. I mean, there's lots of specifics you could do. Like you could get rid of the their um, you know the reserve banks. They have bankers on their boards, which is insane, and we should get rid of that because that's just a political kickback machine, an influence peddling machine. You could just say we're going to remove your supervisory authority. You failed, so we're going to move that over to the FDIC, which has an incentive to not allow these messes to be made. Um, you know, at the most, the most aggressive, you could just, you could just say when you make a monetary policy change, you're going to raise interest rates. We need to have the president, um, approve it or, um, you know, I mean, there's, there's can I just, can I just jump in and, and just, just challenge, challenge you on one thing. I'm not, sure. I'm not challenging you this, uh, challenging you yeah, sure. like, no, no, but, fine. but you sort of devil's advocate. What you always hear whenever this idea is brought up is that, that the that the Fed chairman or the Fed as an institution needs to be independent so it can make tough decisions without uh, fear of or consideration of uh, politics, political right. pressures, and the like. Right. Leave that, the wallet it, inspector alone so he can. Yeah. Do <laughs> yeah. So so what's the? I mean, what's your answer? Uh, to that, this sort of this fear that, you know, some Fed chairman will be uh, too responsive to like what the public wants. What's your response to that? Well, you know, from 1935 to 1950, we dropped the charade and the 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 chair was a guy named Marino Eccles, who was a Scottish Mormon. Um, his, his family was Scottish and then he was Mormon. He was a Utah banker and he became the the uh, the Fed chair and, and FDR would tell him what to do. And Truman would tell him what to do on interest rates. And he did it. And we had 1% unemployment financed the world war two got us out of the great depression. It, and, and there really was, what, you know, wasn't an inflationary like problem. I mean, it was a phenomenally successful, probably the most successful period that the Fed has ever had was when it was explicitly under the control of, the elected leader of this country. 
So, and that's what the the Fed doesn't like people remembering that that era. And then they, and then really until the nineteen late nineteen seventies, um, the Fed kind of was in this nether region where they kind of took direction, but they could make their own choices if they wanted to. And then it was in really it was with Volcker when this kind of notion of the Fed as an independent agency, and it was just wildly inappropriate for anyone to even comment in politics. That's when that emerged. Um, I mean, I think you hear this a lot. Like, do you want Ron DeSantis setting monetary policy? Do you want Kevin McCarthy setting monetary policy? Or if you're a Republican, do you want Joe Biden setting monetary policy? Like, that's outrageous. Um, and I, I generally like, you know, a lot of Democrats, I think, we're very happy that the Fed did what they did in 2010 because or 2011 because they were like, oh, my gosh, the Tea Party Republicans are crazy. Some at least there's an adult in the room in Ben Bernanke or the you know Republicans had the same. You know, they have the same reaction. Um, and I think what all of that really is, is it's a is it's a distrust of democracy at its core. And one of the things that happens when your Democratic leaders don't have anything to do is it's, it's like any academic, um, you know, when you have a place with a bunch of academics, like they fight in really bitter, petty ways because there's no stakes. Um, and I think that's one, one of the things that's happened in Congress and happened with our elected leaders is if if the judges and central bankers make all the decisions then they get to just, you know, fight with each other about meaningless stuff. But like when the pandemic hit and they crafted the CARES Act, there was a lot of stuff in the CARES Act they didn't like, but they did a careful job trying to figure out what to do because the world was on their shoulders. And I think part of what we have to do is say elected leaders, when they, you know, when, when people, when they, when you know who is in charge and the voters know it's that guy making the decision that caused a recession or that guy that's making a decision that caused inflation or brought down inflation or whatever, and I can vote for him or not or against him. That's a healthy system, right? So uh, like, Back in the 1920s, Andrew Mellon, you know, was 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 the ex officio chair of the Fed. He was also the Treasury secretary and he was a bad guy. He was also a much better uh, participant on the Fed Board of Governors than lots of the other people, because lots of the other people were appointed by banks. It was a slightly different arrangement. The the people who were put there by democratic institutions and had some democratic accountability were much more responsive to the public interest, not because they were better people, but because they were institutionally required to be that way. So I think this is more of an institutional question. And every time I hear I say the same, I'm always like, let's replace the Federal Open Market Committee with a congressional committee or let's have the president set rates. And I always get the same response, which is, oh, my gosh, person X. You know, but it would that would be terrible. But it, it is basically like we have to decide that we want a democracy. And like I think that what we see with the Fed is we don't live in a democratic society when these people like Jay Powell are making these decisions. And and that's our choice. We're too afraid to let our own people that we elect make those decisions. So we have to just make a choice to want a democracy and say, yes, we want the people we elect to make these choices. So if we don't like them, we can fire them. And if we do like them, we can rehire those people or, or uh, you know, give them another term. So that's the way I think about it. Uh, Julia, you have one last question for Professor Omarova. Yeah, I want to I want to piggyback off of that uh, point you're making, actually, um, David, which is 
you know, there's there's a lot of finger pointing happening right now. I think, David, you've actually pointed out on Twitter a few times, you know, lawmakers who voted for that those 2018 uh, deregulatory measures saying like, oh, well, you can't really say, you know, it was this exact thing that would have prevented the bank collapse. There are all these efforts to sort of evade. Um, that's the standard, know, by the way. That's the standard playbook. That's the standard. Yeah, the standard playbook is the standard playbook is to something happens and then you cre- you talk about the context for decisions that were made in the lead up to what happens and then it's like well those things didn't wouldn't directly have stopped uh this particular they, they make it extremely specific to try to make make it seem like uh everyone's to blame so nobody's to blame it, well exactly and so that that's that's sort of the question i wanted to throw throw at you uh professor omarova like uh Point some fingers here for us. Who is to blame? You know, who should be held accountable in terms of, you know, moving forward, um, uh, holding both politicians and, you know, banking executives or venture capitalists accountable? Like who, who should be held accountable here? Well, uh, Julia, I, I think we still need some more time to have more information with respect to what exactly happened. Because it's easy, for example, definitely the managers of SVB or a Silvergate and Signature, absolutely, were they account- should they be held accountable for what they've done and you know how many mistakes they've uh, committed? Absolutely. Will they be held accountable? I don't think so. Uh, it's easy to hold accountable, for example, the San Francisco Fed and its supervisory department say, you know, the supervisors missed obvious uh, mismatches in the interest rate uh, exposures and so on and so forth, and that would also be correct. But again, chances are, that mostly um, people down the chain, right, will uh, will really bear uh, bear the burden of uh, being accountable here. Um, I do not know uh, what we can do with respect to those senators uh, or those uh, members of Congress who voted for that 2018 bill, other than vote them out. But again. Voting them out, uh, unfortunately, in our dysfunctional political system, requires a lot of money, which we don't have. So uh, when I am completely sympathetic to all these calls for making finance more democratic by making uh, democratically elected representatives make more decisions more transparently, at the same time, you know, we should be realistic about the kind of electoral system that we have. So uh, should we then start with the campaign finance before we get to uh, fixing the finance finance? Probably so. And I also wanted to just say that um, I am not quite as adamant about um, abolishing the Fed or making the Fed directly accountable or directly under the, you know, under the, under the thumb of uh, any individual president. I think that institution is... Um, Uh, it's performing or it's supposed to perform a very important systemic function. In other words, the the reason why we do have safe and liquid money, bank-created money, deposit money moving in the system, is because of that institutional structure that uh, sits on top of sort of the Fed's balance sheet. Um, Is it doing the job for uh, the, the sake of all of us that we want it to do? Obviously not. Why is it that when we have monetary policy, interest rate policy is the only tool that would uh, basically combat the you know inflation and depression and address all of these economic problems we have we shouldn't just rely on that right nevertheless that's what constantly happens every time 
some problem arises and, you know, uh, everybody's looking to the Fed, start lobbying the Fed, start pressuring the Fed, and the Fed obliges one interest group or another. It's because the Fed is really the only institution uh, in our uh, political economy that has an independent balance sheet. And this is this is where the crux of the problem is. It's a hybrid institution in the sense that it is a political institution, but it's also a market actor. And we haven't figured out how to really manage that balance between these two different rationalities. And this is where I think I agree with you, David, and with you, Matt, is we really need to put all of those fundamental questions on the table. We need to start redesigning the institutions of public finance and institutions of our democracy to make sure that we don't just roll, you know, along this path into nowhere. So listen, well, we're going to leave it there. I want to thank uh, Matt Stoller, uh, Salia Omarova. Thank you to you both. Listeners can subscribe to Lever Time Premium by heading over to levernews.com. When you subscribe, you also get access to all of the Lever's website, our weekly newsletters, and our live events. And that's all for the criminally low price of 8 bucks a month or 70 bucks for the year. One last favor, please be sure to like, subscribe, and write a review for Lever Time on your favorite podcast app. And make sure to head over to levernews.com and check out all of the incredible reporting our team has been doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Rock the boat. The Lever Time Podcast is a production of The Lever and The Lever Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, David Sirota. Our lead producer is Jared Jacang Mayer, and our editor is Dennis Golan. You can find all of our past episodes at levertimepod.com or on all of the major podcast players.